Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. I hope you've been enjoying the Burr Month so far and making the most of them despite everything going on in the world, and that your Christmas spirit is strong as ever. Today we're picking up right where we left off with the seventh installment of the YA novel from 1918, Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. We're just a little more than halfway through the story now, and last time things were starting to look a lot like Christmas. Before we get started, let me remind you as always that it is never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear later on this season. Even if you sent one already in the past, this season more than any other season before it, I really want to share your Christmas memories. So record a short voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Secondly, I'd love to send you an early Christmas card, and all you have to do to get one is leave a review for Christmas Past on Apple Podcasts. I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Those reviews really do help me, so they're kind of like spreading Christmas cheer, and I'd be happy to respond in kind. Again, christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, let's get right back to it. I'll come back at the end to say goodbye, but for now, please enjoy this seventh installment of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 12. A Mysterious Disappearance The Flamingo Campfire arrived at the Stanlock home on Friday. Christmas was scheduled on the calendar to fall on the following Wednesday. From the day of their arrival, all of the girls were busy with Christmas preparations. Every one of them, several weeks before, had taken on her the task of making, buying, or assembling from parts purchased a score or more of presents. As one of the chief aims of Hiawatha Institute was to teach wealthy men's daughters how to be economical, it goes without saying that each of these girls had on hand no enviable winter task. Madam Cleaver laid the matter very plainly before her 240-odd girls. She had observed that the Christmas problem had a tendency to make some of the students of her school sympathize with old Scrooge. If Christmas wasn't a humbug, it could very easily be made a nuisance. Madam Cleaver agreed with them in this respect. She told them so. Furthermore, she added, I don't wish you to understand that there is anything compulsory in the giving of presents on such occasions. One of the dangers of this sort of thing is that it is likely to become a perfunctory affair with thousands taking part because they feel they have to. Also, Christmas is exploited by many people. Their sympathy for the good fellowship of the occasion is measured largely by the dollars and cents that it pours into their coffers. You should see all of these drawbacks and then decide for yourself whether the advantages of Christmas overbalance the drawbacks. For my part, I believe that they do, and I enjoy the day and the season. But don't take my word for it. Decide for yourselves. The result was that everybody at the Institute got busy several weeks before the holiday season, and the manner in which the products of girls' ingenuity began to pile up must have been satisfying indeed to the head of the school. But the work was not all done when the campfire arrived at Holly Hill, most of the girls still having enough to do to keep them busy almost up to Christmas Eve. Mr. Stanlock advised the girls not to leave the house under any condition after night, and engaged three detectives who were given instructions to follow and protect any of Marion's guests who might desire to go shopping or make other journeys about the city in the daytime. Automobiles with drivers were within ready call for these men at any time. 
It was understood also that no journeys were to be made into the section of the city inhabited by the miners and their families. Thus far, the strike had not been attended by violence of any sort or the destruction of property. The men had simply ceased to work and had submitted their demands to the president of the company. The latter realized at once that the employees were being led by an unusual type of labor agitators who might be expected to employ unusual methods to gain their ends. The man who appeared to be the leader was as unusual in appearance as he was in methods pursued. He was about 35 years old but looked five or eight years younger. He had first been employed in the mines about six months before as an operator of an electric chain cutter machine, but he had not long been connected with the work before his influence among the men began to be felt. To the casual observer, he was a quiet, sharp-eyed man who seldom spoke under ordinary circumstances unless he was first spoken to. But he got in communication with all his fellow workers in some mysterious manner, and before long, in spite of the fact that he is not what is popularly known as a mixer, everyone from shovelers to machine men knew him as Dave, the chain cutter man. He had the reputation of being able to do half again as much work as any man in the slope. Although Mr. Stanlock knew of the influence of this man on the miners almost from the day when the strike was called, the only name by which he heard him spoken of during most of the entire period of the tie-up was Dave the Chaincutter Man. Little of special interest relative to the strike, so far as the girls were concerned, took place on the last Saturday and Sunday before Christmas. Mr. Stanlock reported the recent occurrences to the police in detail, but what the police planned to do was not communicated in the form of hint or suggestion to the members of the Flamingo Fire. If Mr. Stanlock knew, he kept the information a close secret. In harmony with his habitual reticence on business matters, he sought to avoid further discussion of the subject. On Saturday, however, there was added to the events of the season one item of great importance, which would have caused Marion no little uneasiness could she have caught more than the most superficial hint concerning it. This hint was so superficial that it consisted merely of a glimpse at the address and postmark on a letter that arrived at the house with the early mail. Marion took the letters and papers from the mailbox, and as she was distributing them, she observed the Holly Hill postmark on an envelope addressed in a man's handwriting to Helen Nash. I wonder who it can be, the hostess mused, as she laid the letter on Helen's dresser. I didn't know she was on special friendly terms with any of the boys in Holly Hill. But then, you can never know what to expect of her. You find out what she's going to do when she does it. In spite of the paradox, no truer statement of Helen's nature had ever been made. She said nothing to any of the girls about the letter she received, and if subsequent events had not recalled the incident, Marion probably would have forgotten it entirely. The three detectives employed by Mr. Stanlock were housed in the now vacant sleeping quarters of the chauffeur over the garage. A buzzer connected with the house and an agreed signal system of 1-2-3 served as a means of quick information as to how many of the men were wanted at any given time. Sunday morning, another chauffeur engaged by Mr. Stanlock arrived and was housed with the detectives. It was not the duty of the latter, of course, to accompany or follow anybody leaving the house unless they were called. Hence, it was quite possible for any of the guests to start out alone and make a trip to any part of the city without the protection of a watchful guard. The possibility that any of the guests might desire to take such a course did not occur to Marion or any other member of the household. It was presumed that everybody would gladly accept such protection on every occasion when it seemed advisable. 
As a matter of fact, however, the detectives had little to do on Saturday and Sunday. Only three of the girls made shopping trips on Saturday and all took an automobile ride Sunday afternoon. This was the sum total of their activities away from the Stanlock home, with the exception of one instance, of which there was no hint until late in the afternoon. About six o'clock, Marion suddenly became mindful of the fact that she had not seen Helen since their return from the automobile drive three hours earlier, and she began a search for her. She first went upstairs to her room to see if her friend were there. Probably she was tired and had lain down to rest and fall asleep, but an inspection of the room failed to discover Helen. Considerably puzzled, Marion now hunted up every other person in the house and inquired for the missing girl. Not one of them remembered seeing her since the return from the drive. The girl hostess was now thoroughly alarmed, and her fears were speedily communicated to the others. Everybody joined in the search, and every nook and corner capable of concealing a human form was examined. Helen Nash was not in the house, and there seemed to be no reasonable explanation for her disappearance. Chapter 13 Find Her or I'll Find Her Myself Mr. Stanlock came home from a meeting of mining stockholders about the time when consternation over the disappearance of Helen was at its height. After the particulars of the affair, so far as they were known, were explained to him, he asked, Where are the detectives? The question fell with something of a shock on the ears of the assembled searchers who had just completed a second fruitless hunt through the house. Why had they not thought of the trio of mystery masters before? We ought to have called them at once, Mrs. Stanlock said. I suppose they've gone by this time, but I'll see. She pushed the buzzer button in the hall, and soon the new chauffeur appeared at the side entrance. Yes, the detectives had gone, but he knew where they could find them, at the High Peak Athletic Club. Mr. Stanlock at once called up the club and soon had one of the detectives on the wire. Can you men come over at once, he inquired. One of the girls has disappeared and we are afraid that something serious has happened. Yes, we'll be there right away, was the answer. Twenty minutes later, there was a ring at the door and the three detectives, a tall, thin man, a short, heavy man, and a squarely built, angular man were ushered in. The short, heavy man, named Myers, was the most talkative of the three. He put forth a string of questions as to when and where Helen was last seen and what she was doing. Had anyone seen her go out of the house? Nobody had. Was there anything particular in her manner in the course of the day? Nothing particular. What kind of girl was she? What were her most noticeable characteristics? Had she any pronounced likes and dislikes? Was she in the habit of doing things just to be contrary? Was she a girl of good judgment or flighty and lightheaded? These questions brought out nothing of tangible advantage, and number one rested apparently well satisfied with the keenness of his record thus far made. Number two now took up the inquiry. He was the squarely built angular fellow with deep-set eyes, quiet demeanor, and few words. His first question was, Has Miss Nash any other friends living in Holly Hill? No, I think not, Marion replied, no particular friends. None that she corresponds with, persisted the man with the deep-set eyes. Marion started visibly. Sudden recollection of the letter received by Helen the day before came to her. She got a letter postmarked Holly Hill yesterday, the young hostess replied. Who is it from? I don't know. I didn't know that she was corresponding with anybody in town, but the address on the envelope looked as if it were written by a man. Do you suppose you could find that letter? 
I'll go upstairs and look, Marion said, suiting the action to the word. In a few minutes, she returned with a waste paper basket in her hands. Helen was sharing my room with me, she said. A letter has been torn up and thrown in the basket. As I didn't do it, it must be Helen's. This begins to look like something, the tall man said with a nod of approval, picking up several bits of paper from the basket. She's torn it up in pretty small pieces, but if we all get busy, we ought to be able to put them together in short time. Let's go out to the dining room table, Mrs. Stanlock proposed, leading the way as she spoke. In a few moments, all were seated around the large fumed oak table from which the spread had been removed as the hard wood surface was much better for the task of piecing the letter together. It was indeed a tedious task, but with so many working together, progress was fairly rapid. Within 15 minutes, half a dozen sentence sections of several words each had been joined in their phrase order. These were soon followed by three or four more, and presently one of the girls found a connecting link between two sections, thus forming a complete sentence. Imagine the thrill that went through everyone as Mr. Stanlock read the following. Get your friends out of Holly Hill as soon as possible. I bet this letter was written by the same person who wrote the Skull and Crossbones letter to me, Marion ventured confidently. That's the very idea that just occurred to me, Miss Ladd declared as she fitted no and confidence together and then tried to find a connecting edge on the pieces held by her neighbor to the left. Fortunately, the letter had been written on only one side of a large sheet of paper, so they could be pasted in correlative positions on another sheet provided for the purpose. Finally, the patchwork was completed, insofar as the material at hand made completeness possible. A few of the bits of torn paper were missing so that a word was wanting here and there in the text, but apparently the idea and purpose of the letter did not suffer from these vacancies. The letter, as read at last by Mr. Stanlock, was as follows. Dear... R. You have failed to do what I... You do. I told you that it was... Dangerous to bring the girls here. The letter of warning to Miss Stan... Did no good... Dot, dot, dot. I want to warn you again and dot, 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 last time. Get your friends out of Holly Hill as soon as possible. I won't be responsible for what occurs. It makes no difference if you have given up your original purpose. Some of the men are so worked up that they are liable to do almost anything. If you can't get the rest out of town, go yourself or you may get hurt. D. Aha! exclaimed the short, heavy, and loquacious detective. That explains the whole thing. Miss Nash has gone out of town. She hasn't done any such thing, Marion exclaimed indignantly, springing to her feet. Marion isn't that kind of a girl. I know she's peculiar, but she isn't a coward. It's evident now that she knew something about affairs here that resulted in the sending of that threatening letter to me, and she kept her information secret for some reason. Whatever her reason was, she meant all right. Did she at any time urge or suggest that it would not be well for the girls to come here in the holidays, Mr. Stanlock inquired? Never a word, Marion replied positively. I admit that once or twice I noticed that there was something peculiar in her manner, and it may have had something to do with her condition back of these developments, but that is all. How do you account for her disappearance? asked Detective Meyer with puzzled humility. I don't pretend to account for it, Marion replied quickly. That's a problem for you men to solve. All I know is that Helen did not intentionally desert us. 
She's gone, and she went for some reason, and I believe that reason is connected with the letter. But it's up to you men to find her, and if you don't find her pretty quick, I'll go and find her myself." A murmur of applause swept the room. "'We'll do it,' declared the tall, thin detective. "'If it's within human power,' conditioned the square-built, deep-eyed man. The talkative gentleman of genius said nothing. All three of them left the house a few minutes later. Chapter 14 Trapped There was little sleep for anyone at the Stanlock home that night. The mystery of the patched-up letter, coupled with Helen's apparently voluntary disappearance and the fear that she'd been led into a trap of some sort, in line with the threat contained in the Skull and Crossbones letter, kept everybody up until long after midnight. Meanwhile, Mr. Stanlock called up the police station and asked the lieutenant in charge to come over and begin work on a new angle of the strike developments. One of the girls has disappeared and we are afraid that something serious has happened, he told the officer over the telephone. The latter soon drove up to the house in an automobile and was admitted by Mr. Stanlock. The conference lasted half an hour, but before half this time had elapsed, Lieutenant Larkin had the station on the wire and was giving instructions to the desk sergeant. To add to the difficulty of the problem, snow began to fall about five o'clock and developed almost into a blizzard in three or four hours. Next morning, the two newspapers of Holly Hill carried big headlines and column-and-a-half stories of the new strike development, suggestive of a far-reaching plot that might result in tragedy. Mr. Stanlock had during the evening received all newspaper calls over a special wire in his private room so as not to disturb the guests with the publicity end of the affair. In the afternoon, Mrs. Stanlock announced that she, being an officer of the Women's Club, with an important duty to perform, must attend a committee meeting from 3 until 4.30 o'clock, and she asked Miss Ladd to accompany her. The latter consented, but cautioned the girls against leaving the house, inasmuch as the three detectives were no longer available for guard duty, having been directed to devote their entire time to the search for Helen. There were now at the house only the twelve remaining campfire girls and the kitchen maid, Kitty Kopke. Marion's younger sister and brother were attending a children's afternoon party a few blocks away. The new chauffeur had been summoned by Mrs. Stanlock to take her and Miss Ladd to the club rooms where the committee meeting was to be held. About three o'clock, a newspaper photographer and a reporter arrived. The girls allowed a group picture to be taken and the reporter was granted an interview. Half an hour after the newspaper men departed, there came a ring at the front door. As Mary, the head servant, was out, Marion answered the ring and found at the entrance a woman of middle age, dressed in plain black, who spoke to her in quick, eager accents thus. "'Is this Miss Marion Stanlock?' "'It is,' the girl answered. "'I am Mrs. Eddy, who moved into one of those vacant houses two blocks from here,' the woman explained. "'I have some information of interest to you.' "'Is it about Helen Nash?' Marion asked so eagerly that there could be no mistaking the subject nearest to her heart. The woman nodded and smiled, and Marion seized her by the arm and almost dragged her into the hall and thence into the reception room. Where is she? Tell me quickly. Two of the other girls in the drawing room heard these words and surmising their significance came rushing in and caught the visitor's answer thus. She's over at my house. She came there last night. I had no idea who she was until I saw the articles in the newspaper. I didn't get it until late, and then I came right over. But, said Marion apprehensively, 
Why didn't she come right home? What was the matter? Couldn't she explain who she was? The girl was not in her right mind, Mrs. Eddy said. She was in a delirium. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and evidently she had been tramping the streets for hours in the storm. How is she now? Oh, I must go right to her. Did she get lost in the storm? Girls, girls, come here. Helen's found. Is she... is she ill? Very ill, Mrs. Eddy? I don't think she's seriously ill, the woman replied with an expression of sweet encouragement. I had a doctor call, and he didn't seem to think there was any immediate danger, although she hasn't talked rationally yet. She is in bed and has a considerable fever. Would it be all right for me to go and see her? Is it against doctor's orders? I'd be very careful, and besides, I'm a nurse. In fact, we're all nurses. Oh, to be sure, it will be all right for you to come. All of you may come if you wish. You can go in one at a time, quietly. Then a couple of you may remain and help nurse her. I really need help, for I am all alone and sat up all night with her, and have been close to her most of the day. Perhaps it would be well for you girls to make arrangements for relief nursing watches. You are perfectly welcome to keep her at my home until she is well if you will relieve me of the necessity of nursing her. Come on, girls, get your wraps. We will all go over. It's only a couple of blocks. Hurry, everybody. Wait, and I'll tell Kitty we're going out, Marion said. She ran through several rooms calling Kitty, Kitty, but received no response. I wonder where she is, the hostess said in a puzzled manner. Well, we haven't time to find her. Come on. I think I saw her go out more than half an hour ago, Harriet Newcomb said. She called someone up on the telephone and then put her hat and coat on and went out the side way, and I haven't seen her since. That's strange, Marion commented. Then the subject was forgotten. The twelve girls and their leader were walking rapidly toward the place where Mrs. Eddy, the Good Samaritan, had taken in and cared for the girl whom every one of them loved as much as they would love a sister. The house they stopped in front of was rather dingy and forbidding. It was a large brick structure set back a hundred feet from the street on a plot of ground nearly an acre in extent. Most of the windows were darkened with green blinds two generations out of date. Mrs. Eddy put a key into the lock and opened the door. Then she stepped aside and motioned the girls to enter, and they did so as if moved by a spell that they were unable to resist. Then the woman herself entered, closed the door, and put the key into the lock and turned it. If the twelve campfire girls had no suspicions as to the genuineness of the motives of the woman up to this time, they had good and sufficient reason to anticipate something dreadful when they saw her take the key from the lock and put it in her pocket. And still, if there were any doubts in their minds after this act, they were effectively dispelled by the sound of a man's voice coming through a doorway from a dimly lighted room to the right, speaking thus. Now, young ladies, let me warn you to be quiet. You have been led into a trap, but you will not be hurt in any way if you obey orders. One scream from any of you will be followed by a blow with a club that will silence you for a long time, maybe forever. This way, please. Everybody be quiet and sensible, and you will be well treated. Well, the countdown to Christmas grows shorter as the suspense grows higher. I hope you enjoyed this installment of the Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. 
Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll come back again next time. Until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earl. Drop me a line anytime, whether you just want to say hi, share a Christmas memory, or anything else for that matter. You can reach me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com, or reach out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet, because we're celebrating the Burr months and well beyond. And again, I'd love to send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thank you for leaving a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Reach out for details on that. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.